What is it? The main thing I got from it was like this sense of feeling seen and validated. Well, why does it have to be this way? This book was placed in my hand for this moment. Insightful, learned a lot, wrote some quotes that I'm ready to like paint on my wall. I love this book! That we just kind of pull out some, some of the big themes that we see and, and talk about a few different ones. I apologize if most of my contribution has K-pop references. Alternative book title, The Feminine Mystique Part 2. You were really just gay all along. <laughs> Welcome to Book Club. With Julia. And Victoria. The people who relate every single one of their friends' personal experiences to book characters. And we'd like to be your book friends. This is a podcast for the books we just can't shut up about. And this week we are finally reading The Story of the Lost Child by Elena Ferrante. dun 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 fireworks it's a big day yes we're talking about the fourth book of the neapolitan series and this episode will be filled to the brim with spoilers from all four books of the series so if you haven't read the books you are more than welcome to join this listening party but just know that we will hold no details back we will not refrain from revealing every and all plot twist yeah so you have been warned But very quickly, before we get into that, I need to shamelessly plug our site. If you want to support us for free, you can rate, review, and subscribe on any and all podcast platforms. If you click on a link to a book in our show notes on any of those platforms, it will take you to our affiliate page on the website bookshop.org. And if you purchase a book from that site, they source books from independent bookstores, which is great. We love to support indie bookstores keep those open we get a very small kickback from that purchase which helps us buy books for this show and then last but not least if you would like to go all in and become one of our book friends you can become a member at buymeacoffee.com slash book club with jv the newest thing on there at the moment is we are currently archiving some of our old episodes that we love very dearly but are not necessarily representative of the type of show we make anymore, but we don't want them to go away. So they're going to be available for members to peruse anytime you're feeling nostalgic for the good old days. (laughs) Of early 2019. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So long ago. So, yeah. That's just $3 a month. And um, shout out to our newest member, Nyla. Thank you for your support. And we're so excited to finally share this episode for you. This is just for you. Anyone else who's listening, you're, you're we're happy to have you here. But Nyla, this one's for you. Yeah, Nyla like came for us in the comments being like, you need to release this episode. <laughs> we're like, okay, it's coming. It's coming. Okay, what was our experience reading this book? We knew this was coming. You know, we'd been planning to read this book for so long, but both of us Tend to take a little while to get through these Ferrante novels, minus the one exception when I read book two all in a weekend. Otherwise, it takes a little bit. But this was my COVID read in the sense that I caught COVID and then I read this book. It was my (laughs) quarantine buddy. (laughs) I read like 150 pages the first day I was sick in bed, which surprises me because I was particularly feverish that day. Yeah. My ability to remember details might be a little off. (laughs) But I did reread a synopsis. Okay. I came to this book with a lot of anticipation because I really enjoyed the first three books. And I was really looking forward to hear how it all ended. 
though Ferrante definitely did not explain everything. No. But I still think it was a satisfying conclusion to the quartet. Yeah, I thought we were going to hear why Leela disappeared. No. I know, I've been waiting like four novels and like a thousand pages and it's like we still don't know. Yeah, and she's like, that's the point, is we don't know. And you're like, god damn it, Ferrante. <laughs> okay. Yeah, for me personally, I mean, canonically, I am on record as saying that I am a strong hater of Nino Saratore. This is known. So the fact that, like, the first third of the book was just, like, her dealing with her messy divorce and trying to make things work with Nino way longer than she should have was just, like, walking through tar for me. And then when she moved back to Naples, and especially when she moved back into the neighborhood, is when I was like, okay, here we go. Yeah, so like the first, that first third, I think took me six weeks to read while I was in Seattle. I would read like one section at a time. And then I read the other two thirds, literally on the plane home and like the layover. So in like a day, I think this, I've decided I think this is my second favorite. I think the second book, Story of a New Name, is probably my favorite. And then this one, I think is my second. And then the first one, and then the third one. I hate the third one. I'm sorry. <laughs> that is my ranking order as well. I was yeah? thinking that through last night. Yeah, I was trying to figure out why I liked book two so much. I think, yeah, the, the story is just really riveting in that mm-hmm. one. I think also I'm just a bit older than the characters are in that book. So it feels like a very recent experience. Like if I reread this series in my 40s, mm. am I going to relate more to the the last book and perhaps the third book too when she's in her, you know, 20s, 30s? But yeah, I, I do think, I think the second book... That one really, I mean, I read that in like a matter of days. That was mm-hmm. so, so enthralling. But yeah, this one, this one had some good twists that really had me. Yes. Like, <gasps> which I really enjoyed. That is true. That is true. This one had some real jump scares and like some plot twists. And the Alfonso Michele reveal, I literally had to text you. I was like, what? It's <laughs> like so. Yes. That one threw me. I was like, I literally texted her, like, I need a whole literary, I need all the queer theory I can muster. I need a whole literary degree to parse through what the hell just happened. (laughs) Anyway, so all that to say, I think there's the dynamic of the two friends together is really just magic especially when they're in their community with their friends and families and whatever. Mm -hmm. And I feel like when it's just Elena, it just doesn't have that kind of, it's a, it doesn't have that magic, you know? And I think the third book is when she spends the the most time alone. So yeah, they just create this kind of world between them, even if it's not positive all the time, but it's so engaging to read. Okay. I also had a thought too. I I feel like, you know, the city of Naples becomes such a, it's so central to the whole quartet. Yeah. And it's like a character in and of itself. And so whenever she's not in Naples, I don't feel the connection to the location as much. Because Ferrante doesn't spend the time to really paint the picture of Florence or Paris or wherever she's at more so than just general details. Like, I'm in Rome. So when we're back in Naples, I feel just much more grounded, too, which may be actually really intentional because that's like the central, it's central to the entire experiences that they're Neapolitan. That's a really good point. So we've already talked about this author. This is now our fourth time. So what else do you have to add? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, if you want to hear more about Fronte as an author, as a person, 
go back to our episode on My Brilliant Friend, where we did a, a deep dive. We re-released that episode a few weeks ago, so it's just scroll a little bit up in the feed. But the main details to know, Elena Fronte is an Italian writer, and Elena Fronte is her pseudonym. We don't actually know who this author is. She communicates with journalists and such via email or the phone. We know she's an Italian woman. That's about it. Yeah, uh, recently she published In the Margins, which is actually a collection of four different lectures that were presented. So she wrote them and then an actor presented them at different conferences. Her dedication to not (laughs) appearing in public. (laughs) And in that, you get a little bit more of her like academic and literary theory stance. And and Hmm. I started reading them. I, I enjoyed the first lecture, but I did feel like I was going back to college and I just was not in the mood. Mm. Um, <laughs> so I like didn't finish the, the rest of the book but in there a bit and in other interviews and such she's given she's talked a lot about her desire to kind of remove the author hero mm-hmm. um, which in, in modern day literature is like massive you know that's how you get published is by having a public following um, that's how you garner an audience around your work a lot of writers have already built that audience through short form writing or their website or through a podcast or so many other things before they even get that book deal in some cases so it is quite contrarian that that's what she's chosen to do but it's worked out quite well for her i was trying to see if there's any like newsworthy items since our last episode on Ferrante came out in april One is that there's a six-part adaptation of Fronte's novel, The Lying Life of Adults, that's coming to Netflix in January. Fronte's one of the co-writers. Two of the other co-writers also worked on HBO's My Brilliant Friend TV series. So it looks like it'll be good. Maybe a contender for a film club. Yeah. We'll see if we want to do it. It feels much more approachable because it's a six, (laughs) six part minisode than to do all of My Brilliant Friend, the TV show. It would have been a lot. Yeah. Also, Interesting enough, I actually got caught up in this hoax as well. (laughs) A Twitter account run by a journalist who is like on a mission to make a point about the ridiculousness of Italian media (laughs) uh, unleashed an uproar by claiming that Elena Fronte had died and reputable and like big name publications reprinted this. Oh my God. As truth until it was finally fact checked and realized that this Twitter account was like, not actually associated with the publishing house that it appeared to be associated with. Apparently, this journalist was trying to make a stand about something, but I saw the notification come up on my, like, like Google News or something, and I was like, holy crap. And so oh by the time God. I clicked on it, it had been taken down. And so then I looked around and realized it was a hoax. Wow. Yeah. Elena Fronte, as, as far as everyone knows, is still alive. Elena Fronte is immortal. Elena Fronte cannot be killed. <laughs> She is an ageless one. She is just a spirit that inhabits various bodies over time. I was going to say, there's like a cult ritual where like the spirit of Alana Ferrante is like given to someone else in the way that Black Panther continues to live. You drink the flower thing and yeah. So I, my summary is very long um, and I wrote this in a kind of fugue state. So let's see how it goes. Elena starts the book sort of dealing with the consequences of her actions, as always, right? She's going through a divorce. She's trying to figure out a life with Nino that she's happy with. She's trying to be a mother. She's gaining professional success, and it's very messy. She basically, like, punches her mom. She gets into a bitch-off with her mother-in-law. It's a whole mess. She moves to Naples with her daughters, essentially to be Nino's mistress, because she soon learns that Nino isn't going to leave his wife 
and that his wife is actually going to have another baby because he needs the connection with his father-in-law to continue working and social climbing. And he does his sad puppy dog eyes of like, I, I can't leave her, but I want you. And she's like, oh, fine. And you're just like, no, girl, no, run away. But she stays for a while. So Elena deals with some serious cognitive dissonance for a while, and she tries to have it both ways in that relationship and in her career and her social life. She starts taking care of her sick mother, who starts opening up to her in all these new ways, back in the lives of her neighborhood friends, back in Leela's life. And she discovers that Leela is sort of like the new boss in town, running a tech company out of her apartment with Enzo. Yeah, Elena's trying to do both. She's trying to live, be in the neighborhood and also not be in the neighborhood. Trying to be in Naples and not be in Naples, be with Nino and not be with Nino, and it's a mess. And then all of the things in her life sort of come to a, a breaking point, right? So she has her baby. Three weeks later, her mother dies. She's supposed to have written a novel for her publisher, but she hasn't, and they've been giving her money. And so she turns in an old manuscript that she was embarrassed about a long time ago and never threw away. And then she catches Nino cheating with their housekeeper, and that's sort of the final straw. So she leaves him and rents an apartment above Leela's in the neighborhood with her daughters. She just sort of gives up. She's like, all right, I'm going to live in the neighborhood. We're going to do it. Luckily, her publisher loves the book and wants more. And so that's where she gets her money from, <laughs> just in the nick of time. So Elena immerses herself fully in the neighborhood in order to write her next book. Leela also uh, gives birth to her baby uh, with Enzo shortly after Elena. And so... They raise their, all their kids together, and they're like, we're going to fix the neighborhood. Look at us go, two high-powered women. Nothing can go wrong. And then everything is going more or less okay until Leela's daughter Tina goes missing. And this is where the sort of maturity section ends, and it's very obviously terrible. Very tragic. So this absolutely devastates Leela. She has a whole breakdown because she can't, like, deal with, things because there's this sort of ambiguity of like is Tina gone is she dead is she alive where is she and so Leela puts all her energy into that and everything she built and all the work she was doing in the neighborhood just sort of slowly crumbles she and Elena grow more bitter and distressful towards each other and it was as a result of many things eventually Elena moves away she moves out of the neighborhood and as she gets older Elena worries that she's become irrelevant and her life becomes more and more isolated especially as like all the people around her are getting old and dying. And so she decides to write a book that she's been turning around in her head for years about the disappearance of Leela's daughter, Tina. The book is extremely successful, but Leela stops talking to her. And then one day she gets a call, a, a bunch of other things happen, but one day she gets a call from Leela's son that Leela has taken all her stuff and disappeared without a trace, which brings us back to the present day where we started back at the very beginning of book one, with Elena writing the books that we're currently reading. It's very meta. And we discover that it's the book that Elena's writing to try and figure out where Leela might have gone. And in the epilogue, Elena wonders what might have really happened to Tina. And when she returns home, she receives this mysterious package with no writing on it. And inside are the dolls that Elena and Leela lost in Donna Keel's basement all those years ago when they first became friends. Very, very beginning of the book, when we didn't quite know what was happening yet. <laughs> it turns out that was an essential part of the story. And so there's a lot of things you could read into that. It's a big mystery. So we're going to talk about that and how open that ending is, uh, among a bunch of other things. But yeah, here we go. 
For our discussion today, we wanted to focus in on two things that kind of tie in together. One is this idea of cycles. This is a theme, a trope that we see come up throughout the whole series, and a lot of it really comes to full circular completion in this book four. And then we'll also talk about something we touched on, I think kind of in all the episodes we've talked yeah. about so far, but the limitations of Elena's point of view, because this is a first person narrative. And understanding how these cycles work, what we can understand from Elena's point of view to kind of encapsulate this bigger question of like, why are these books so successful? Why do we find these books so enthralling? Um, and these are just two of the main things we think contribute to that. Yeah, these are the things that we wanted to talk about to kind of wrap up this whole giant monster of a series that in many ways cannot be summarized, as you just saw. So let's get into it. I feel like the best place to start is in the final section, not the epilogue, but like the old age section. There is this conversation between Elena and her youngest daughter, Emma. And Emma's been spending a lot of time with Leela. I feel like the conversation that they have really brought to the surface most directly and most clearly this sort of theme of cycles. Because you see it in the sense of the cycles of history, right? And Elena, it comes to Elena's consciousness as a main character and as a narrator. And so it becomes the most clear in this moment. But basically, Emma is telling Elena all the things that Leela told her on this tour of Naples. And she explains the sort of cyclical nature of things. How history is full of good and bad and good things lead into bad things, and bad things lead into good things, and it's constantly flowing into one another. And that was sort of meant to be a comforting thing to Emma when her life is very chaotic, and she has a really shitty father. Her father is Nino, who's currently in prison, and it's meant to be something comforting, right? But Elena really resists it. She really doesn't like it. She sort of bristles, because she really needs to believe that like hard work and ideology can lead to real sort of a linear progress and a linear change. And she really needed that view in order to get as far as she's gotten and be as successful as she is, right? But Leela, her whole thing is she's always seeing the system. She's always seeing the bigger picture. In many ways, this is what makes Leela so powerful, but also makes her feel so terrified of everything and feel like the boundaries are always dissolving and it kind of holds her back from leaving the neighborhood because she's so she sees the whole thing and it feels so inevitable to her there the differences in their ideology sort of enacted in this one prediction that they make where Leela correctly predicts that Nino who's currently in prison for political corruption will be released and will return to parliament because that's just like how the world works right corrupt politicians gain more power and it just, the cycle keeps going on, right? And Nino, who was once a very opinionated and sort of moral person who wanted to fix his father and be different from his father, ends up becoming a corrupt politician and honest, being worse, honestly, than his father. And the cycles go on and on, right? And Elena is, she's like, no, 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 he's not going to leave. He's not going to go back to Parliament. He's in prison. That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense linearly. But if you're looking at the big picture, like, of course he would. And he does. Leela ends up being right. 
And so that's just this sort of little microcosm of where Elena starts to become aware of how differently they see things and how maybe while her sort of linear progress has worked for her and has gotten her where she is, it's not necessarily accurate, (laughs) which we'll get into a bit more later. But I felt like that sort of view of Naples as constantly cycling good and bad, good and bad, and this sort of inevitabilities was a really powerful through line that we see in the series, but particularly it all comes to fruition in this book. Yeah. And on that tour, they're talking about how some of the neighborhoods have changed over time. Like this building used to be this, and then it became this, and then it became that. And how the city's kind of built on itself over time. Mm -hmm. Um, And so a neighborhood that used to be like very prominent is now lesser. So, but then it becomes like, you know, prominent again. Um, And we even see the cycle in their own neighborhood, how, you know, as we get further and further in the story, Leela and Elena are no longer the center, you know, the young people of their neighborhood who feel like in the center of everything. There's like different people who are coming in and the cycle continues and history continues. And even on like a very small level, like Elena comes back to the neighborhood in this book. And this is where her Mm -hmm. cycle kind of brings her back full circle to where she started, even if she feels like in a linear way she has changed. And another powerful moment of this for me was the earthquake. Mm, Yes. Yeah. I don't know if you had this reaction. I forgot that Naples is like on Vesuvius. I know you said that it's mentioned in earlier books, but I was like Mount Vesuvius, like the Mount Vesuvius, the one that like the quintessential volcano that we're taught about from ancient history. It's like the volcano. Like, to me, it just feels like, well, of course the volcano is having some seismic action, you know? Like, to me, that feels like living on a dormant volcano feels like an inevitability. Like, maybe you're it's on geological time, so you have a really long time until it's active again. But, like, of course. It doesn't feel surprising once you hear it, I guess. It was surprising in the moment. I'm like, what? There's an earthquake? What? What's happening? But as soon as I saw, like, oh, it's Vesuvius, it had this sort of weight of inevitability to it that I feel like now looking back when I'm sort of rereading with this eyes, these eyes of looking for cycles, to me that felt like a really big one. But it's like on the scale of the planet, you know. I was just looking at a map. Vesuvius is like five miles east of the heart of Naples. So it, like... Naples sits in like the shadow of Mount Vesuvius. It's pretty darn close. Yeah, I mean, the scene with the earthquake really, I was going to say really shook me and that was, that was a really <laughs> terrible pun. Uh, completely by accident. It really felt like one of those big twists of the book. Like, even though I was aware Vesuvius was there, mm-hmm. it had been alluded to, um, we didn't realize there was really no foreshadowing besides the fact that the mountain that volcano is nearby, that this was going to happen. And it's really traumatizing. And and for a while, you know, everyone like can't find their family. Everyone's scattered. Some people have like left the city for safety. And you have that really intense scene with the two of them sitting in the car. And this is where we, yeah, like you said, we finally get that kind of explanation of how Leela sees the world. And that's when we, we start piecing together all these other moments where Elena 
in the present writing the novel is able to say, I now know Leela was experiencing this, but at the time I didn't know that. And this is the moment where we actually know, we actually figure out how and when Leela told Elena. Yeah, I feel like the earthquake, it's a reminder that no one's ever truly safe in the long term from the sort of instabilities of life and the cycles of life. Like you're not immune, you know, mm-hmm. um, nothing ever and nothing's ever truly stable or static in the neighborhood. And I feel like it also kind of foreshadows the death and loss of people and the loss of power that's coming later, much later, like 10 years later. But yeah, you it's suddenly there's this looming presence that asserts itself when you kind of forgot it was there and you felt comfortable. Mm-hmm. I think the earthquake is really interesting too because it's one of those things that can seem when you're zoomed in like a random act of nature like Mm. no one could have predicted this it was it just destroyed a lot of things so destabilizing but from a big picture point of view it is like a cycle that the earth goes through that the plates move and all that and yeah again one of these examples of like really close up things might look extremely chaotic but from a distance they are part of this ongoing cycle of instability but you mentioned like the foreshadowing of death to come so we could talk a bit about like the cycle of life and death which we see very like explicitly in this novel with the birth of elena's third daughter and who's named after elena's mother and then very soon after that elena's mother dies and so there's kind of like the baby is the new ima Mm -hmm. the former has passed away and this also kind of brings a bit of closure to Elena's relationship with her mother, which has been central to a lot of the book. And there's this constant fear that she's going to become her mother in so many ways. And I think in this book, we see it's not like a straight answer, but in some ways she has become like her mother, for better or for worse. And in another way, she hasn't. I, As a reader, I was particularly glad to see that their relationship kind of changed by the end. You know, it wasn't like yeah. without its drama anymore, but it, there was a, a bit of closeness there, which was gratifying to read. I found it a little bit frustrating that her mother is at the end of her life revealing her true feelings and like how Elena was her only daughter, her only real child. And she pinned all her hopes on Elena and she's so proud of her. And like, she thinks that Elena is going to be okay. And and I'm like, you don't get to come in here in the final hour and declare your undying love and be like, you're my real child and all this stuff. I'm like, have you seen how you've treated your child this whole time? Yeah. I, she was actively, I mean, yes, of course, she was a force for why Elena succeeded, but she also got in the way a lot. And I found it a little frustrating, but on Elena's behalf... <laughs> But it seemed like Elena got a lot out of it and that it was a nice closure for her. And so in that respect, it was nice. But I was like, A, you could have had this relationship the whole time. B, now it feels like you're just sort of using her to get things off your chest and to feel better before you die. And I just, I don't know. It wasn't totally satisfying to me, but also it was. It felt like a good conclusion to that very tumultuous story. But I mixed feelings let's put it that way there was a section that you wanted to read so this is when elena is taking care of her mother while she's sick so from then on her meaning her mother 
Her periods of bitter silence diminished, and those of uninhibited confidences increased. Sometimes she said embarrassing things. She revealed that she had never been with any man but my father. She revealed with coarse obscenities that my father was perfunctory. She couldn't remember if sleeping with him had ever truly given her pleasure. She revealed that she had always loved him, that she still did, but as a brother. She revealed that the only good thing in her life was the moment I came out of her belly. I, her first child. She revealed that the worst sin she had committed, a sin for which she would go to hell, was that she had never felt attached to her other children. She had considered them a punishment, and still did so. She revealed finally, without circumlocutions, that her only true child was me. When she said this, I remember that we were at the hospital for an examination. Her distress was such that she wept even more than usual. She whispered, I worried only about you, always. The others for me were stepchildren, so I deserve the disappointment you've given me. What a blow, Lenu, what a blow. You shouldn't have left Pietro. You shouldn't have gone with Saratore's son. He's worse than the father, an honest man who is married, who has two children, who doesn't take someone else's wife. And then her, her mother says, uh, Must I watch you become worse than me? No, Ma, don't worry, I'll move forward. I don't believe it anymore, Lenu, you've come to a halt. You'll see, I'll make you happy, we'll all make you happy, my siblings and I. I abandoned your brothers and sisters, and I'm ashamed. It's not true, Elisa has everything she wants, and Pepe and Gianni work, have money, what more do you want? I want to fix things. I gave all three of them to Marcello, and I was wrong. And so then Elena has to promise to, like, get Leela's help to save her siblings from the Solaris clutches. And then her mother feels like she's resolved all of her worries, and then they speak very candidly with each other after that. But there's this kind of, like, sort of childlike openness, just spilling all her secrets. It's interesting, too hearing the conversation about moving forward and yeah. knowing you've halted. In Elena's point of view, while she may have difficulties, she, at this point in the novel, still sees herself as very much on a linear path up and out from the neighborhood in many ways through education and social connections and a career. And again, we see this, like, which is a theme throughout the whole series, this the, the conflict between different people's ideas of what is progress. Mm. And, like, her mother wants her to have this typical life and, and sees things like leaving a marriage that was stifling and lacking love as a bad thing. I would argue her getting with Nino is probably not the best decision she ever made, but <laughs> no. in many ways she was claiming her own desires mm-hmm. um, in, in her life, which is something that she wasn't really told was an option or something that she should be doing as a woman of her time. Um, as far as like claiming her own desires in life. So yeah, it's interesting to 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 think about what 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 does it mean to move forward? And also, has Elena actually stagnated as her mother as her mother alludes to? Because she has returned to Naples at this point, um, not in the neighborhood yet, but in Naples. Yeah. So she's come around in one of her cycles, and her mother sees that as a return to the beginning of sorts. It's like a, it's not a continued progress. Whereas like returning to Naples is ultimately what gives Elena the freedom to live alone. Yeah. It's sort of the chain of events that she needs to be free. And she, she and Leela really need each other during that time. And so it creates progress for her professionally more than she ever could have imagined, I think. Another cycle we see here, and especially a little bit further in the book when Elena and Leela's children are more grown, is this kind of generational cycle. So mm. uh, Elena is trying to 
in many ways move away from the cycle of her family as far as living in the neighborhood of poverty, of low education, and she's trying to break beyond that. But in some ways we see in the second generation, Elena's daughters, Elsa and Didi and Lila's son, Reno, kind of re-enter the cycle that has loose parallels to how Mm. Elena and Lila's adolescence panned out as well. So we have this young affair between Reno and Elsa that totally breaks Didi's heart. Didi's obsessed with Reno and in love with him and her younger sister. I I don't know. I don't want to use the word seduces, but Reno and uh, Didi's younger sister get together. And that eventually leads to Didi's departure from the neighborhood to live in America with her father. And this is a bit of an echo of Leela and Nino's affair in book two that really tore up Elena. And felt like a betrayal. Yeah. Yeah. This sisterly betrayal around a shared lover happening again in another generation. Similarly, Elena is really disappointed to see her daughters pick up habits and mannerisms from the neighborhood. Again, she's trying to break beyond this cycle and this social sphere. And so when Ima is seeming like too integrated into the neighborhood culture, that's when Elena's like, it's time to leave. I, I need to break this cycle. And she tries to remove her daughter from that situation, which... In many ways, I mean, we don't really get a close look at her daughters as adults. Um, so maybe one could say the the cycle has broken. These daughters are well-educated. They have much more money and connections. They have cosmopolitan lives living in different countries and cities. But then we get towards the end of the book, we get a scene where Elena's now adult daughters are poking fun at Elena's writing in early novels and kind of making fun of some of the early, uh, of the feminist writing of the time when Eleanor was writing that now seems really dated and the world has moved on in so many ways. Yeah. But the same act of trying to distance yourself from your mother, I, I think parallels what Elena tries to do with her mother and distance herself from the fate of her mother as well. Again, this idea of like, Oh, I'm pushing forward. I'm pushing beyond. I'm becoming something different than my mother was. Um, again, we don't get to see how their daughter, her daughter's lives pan out to know if they, maybe in their older age, come around and see themselves as more similar than dissimilar than their mother. Yeah, that one, that scene, I felt a small pang of guilt. I (laughs) I have to admit. Because Emma, I think, is not much older than us. Like, I think her two older daughters are, like, very firmly Gen X. But Emma's, there's something, it's it's not so far off. She doesn't feel quite as far off. And then seeing them, like, I feel like I've done the same thing with sort of some older feminist writings. You read it and you're like, what are you even talking about? Like, what? (laughs) Yeah. Because the world has changed so drastically that, like, things that are radical now or things that are defiant now or things that are pushing the envelope or things that affect our lives even, you know, are quite different. And so it can be easy to forget, like, how much work had to be done for us to get to the point where, like, I can just be an unmarried woman in my late 20s getting my graduate degree and no one bats an eye kind of thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I felt a little bit of guilt. I hadn't seen it from her perspective before where I had been with her all every step of the way while she was writing these manuscripts being often a single mother and like putting it all together and forming these ideas that no one had really talked about yet and doing her best, you know? And then 
things change so much and then her daughters are like you sound so stuffy he 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 like we've moved on and she's like god damn it show some respect <laughs> i'm like hmm, yeah it's yeah. probably a good thing to remember something that felt like a cycle that we see just within the series is that over the course of these four books finally in the fourth book we get elena and leela at the peak of their power here in this sort of the middle of this book where Leela's like basically running the neighborhood and Elena's at the height of her literary career. She's like killing it. She's making her own money. Everyone defers to Leela in the neighborhood. She's seen as like a real, she's a real threat. Just her on her own running this little computer business is like a genuine threat to like a whole gangster cartel family situation. And so that's a really sort of shining peak moment when they're when they're sort of in their 40s. And then it all fades away with the disappearance of Tina. And then it comes back a bit for uh, Elena with the publication of this book about Tina and gives the sense that it's going to sort of leave a legacy for future generations. Yeah, so we see the cycle of power from the beginning of the quartet where they're young children their young girls the least powerful in their entire community in many ways um cycling to the peak of their power and then again like we mentioned by the end of the novel other people live in the neighborhood other people's concerns are at the center of attention the young girls running around are you know having their main character moments now and elena and leela fade into the background and and perhaps aren't even known anymore as more and more people they know die Um, or move out of the neighborhood. So by the end of the novel, it looks like a completely different place. And even like the cycle of like who runs the neighborhood. So the very first book is the murder of Donna Keel, who's sort of the old fascist regime of the neighborhood. And then the head of the Solara family sort of takes over and then his wife and then the two sons. And then in this book, Leela has a glimpse of it for a minute and then it's gone. And you get the impression by the end that like new people are running it now. And So in many ways, the entire quartet can be read as a cycle or a circle, much more than like a linear story, even though there is like beginning, middle, end in many ways. But we end book four, like basically exactly where we began with the mystery of like why Lila disappeared and the dolls. Um, I think that's probably the biggest piece, the biggest reveal of like what has changed since that preface in book one is the epilogue of book four, mm-hmm. where the dolls are sent to her anonymously. And so if you were to end book four and immediately pick up book one, you get this opening scene of their childhood and by brilliant friend, where you get this foreboding statement, which doesn't really mean much to you when you first open the novel, because mm-hmm. you have no idea what's happening. But it's what the narrator Elena has in mind as she's sitting to write this so quote we were always going towards something terrible that had existed before us yet had always been waiting for us just for us there's this idea that yeah that there's something terrible has always been coming this idea of fate is introduced right out of the gates and in a way Elena is trying to write this book to figure out what happened like she's going back to see where she can find Leela in her story and she we we get glimpses of this throughout the series where she might pull back for a moment and talk about i won't spend much time here because leela was not a part of this period of my life or this is where i felt her presence in all these different ways even if she wasn't actually around yeah she writes uh this is in book four where she's looking 
to see and find Leela in her writing. She says, Only she can say if, in fact, she has managed to insert herself into this extremely long chain of words to modify my text, to purposefully supply the missing links, to unhook others without letting it show, to say of me more than I want, more than I'm able to say. I wish for this intrusion. I've hoped for it ever since I began to write our story. So Elena has, and this is something she struggles with a lot in in this fourth book is, and in, in earlier books, is how much of her skill in writing is because of Leela and what mm-hmm. is her own. Like she finds herself so deeply integrated that she can't quite piece together where she begins and Leela ends in, in many ways. And so that maybe in the telling and the retelling of the story, she can find a clue that maybe she missed to figure out where Leela went or what happened to Tina. But as a reader, it's also frustrating because you get all the way to end of book four. <laughs> You have mm-hmm. no more answers. You just have a lot more context, uh, but no more answers than you had at the very beginning of book one. Just very like life, I suppose. Oh, yeah. Not many answers, but a lot of context. <laughs> <laughs> or many episodes of this podcast. We have no answers. We just have a lot of context. <laughs> That's true. That is true. Oh, man. <laughs> And I feel like at the end of this cycle where she sort of, where she reveals actually that she's been rereading it along with you to try and find Leela, that she is as uncertain of her understanding of her own voice as we are. And with the dolls arriving and realizing how little we know and we're left on this sort of open-ended, like, wait, what just happened kind of feeling, we realize we're sort of confronted with how the limitations of this narrator, which has been kind of a theme throughout the books. And it's something I think we talked about a lot last episode in particular. Um, the Not last episode, but the book, the episode on book three. <laughs> <laughs> the way that she's really not... Something I, I complain about when I'm feeling more jaded about her is I'm like, Elena's so unobservant. Like she, there's so much that she misses about herself, about other people. And there's certain moments where you're just not quite sure, is this what really happened, Elena? Or is this just you trying to explain it to yourself or trying to make a good story? Or are you making this up? You just don't always trust her either. And so we found some examples in this book as well of sort of the limitations of Elena's point of view. So a lot of the novels is Elena struggling with her sense of self. And I think it's it's like a weird meta jumble in my head to figure out how Ferrante the writer is writing and Elena who's writing herself who doesn't quite understand herself, but is writing herself to understand herself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like... <laughs> How does one do this? But it's really evident in the text that Ellen is so insecure about where she's from and she's trying to insert herself into this world that she doesn't quite know and understand. And so she doesn't always have the language to fit in in many ways. And this insecurity comes up time and again. And I think sometimes we'll cloud her perception events. Like you said, we're like, okay, did that really happen? Or is that Elena's distortion or her idea of what happened? And sometimes it may be because she didn't understand all the factors at play or she is trying to frame it into a story that she can grasp, as many of us do when we are in an uncertain situation. 
So in book three, we get a lot of Elena focused on ideology and then also acting in different ways that don't match the idea she prescribes to. And I feel like in book four, we we see her begin to parse out and recognize and come to an understanding with herself that her ideas and actions are often in contrast with each other. And there's a lot of really great ideas um, in an academic setting that just aren't compatible completely with her actual lived experiences mm-hmm. so there's this good sense of gross that we see in elena i think in this book yeah we actually get this rare moment of honesty like some pillow talk with nino the like one night when they got along or i guess this is a montage of sorts where she says some nights i curled up next to him and tried to explain myself to myself I confess that I liked subversive words, words that denounced the compromises of the parties and the violence of the state. Politics, I said, politics the way you think about it, as it certainly is, bores me. I leave it to you. I'm not made for that sort of engagement. But then I had second thoughts and added that I didn't feel cut out either for the other sort of engagement that I had forced myself into in the past, dragging the children along with me. The threatening shouts of the demonstrations frightened me, as did the aggressive fringes, the armed gangs, the dead on the street, the revolutionary hatred of everything. I have to speak in public, I confessed, and I don't know what I am. I don't know to what point I seriously believe what I say. So we get this realization that maybe she just sometimes just says things. And then she says, Now with Nino, I seemed able to put into words the most secret feelings, Even things I didn't say to myself, even the incongruities, the acts of cowardice. He was so sure of himself, solid. He had detailed opinions about everything. I felt as if I had pasted onto the chaotic rebellion of childhood neat cards bearing phrases suited to make a good impression. But I liked the words that she sort of taped onto herself to make a good impression. I really liked that because we don't realize that she's doing that because we can't hear her talk, right? We're Mm -hmm. getting what's going on inside her head as she's writing. And so there's moments when we question it, but we don't know how she comes across to other people because she doesn't always know. And then you get this moment with Leela that I loved where Pietro comes to visit the girls. This is when Elena's living above Leela in the neighborhood. So they're just like full house, basically. Messed up Naples version. And Pietro comes to visit the girls and he's like talking to Leela and they're all hanging out. And then Pietro leaves and Leela makes this comment about how impressive Pietro is because when he talks, he sounds like a real academic, not like someone who's just reciting a book or a paper. And Elena's like, what are you saying? You're saying that I sound like that? And Leela's like, yeah, kind (laughs) of. And all of a sudden we get this, oh, like, oh, does she sound really contrived? Does she sound like she's putting it on, you know? And it's a moment of realization for her where she realizes how much of a social climber she is. That she's, you know, adapted, adopted different languages to kind of fit in and different ideologies potentially to fit in. So that that's sort of a, a two-parter of like the confessions to Nino of her trying to explain herself to herself, as she says, and then Leela calling her out. I, yeah, I feel like in this book, she finally acknowledges how much she has, yeah, social climbed and adapted. And she didn't always acknowledge that. One thing I feel like Elena doesn't, and, and correct me if you feel like she does, but I don't feel like she ever 
truly understands how much she's projecting her fears and insecurities back on herself through the voice of others. Oh, yeah, no, I don't think she does at all. (laughs) I don't think she quite grows out of this one where she, especially early in this book, she's pushing Leela away again, like she has so much in in book three and in the other books as well. And she assumes Leela wants to hurt her. That what Leela is saying is meant to be cruel, is meant to be, you know, tearing Elena down. And and maybe some of it is. But I feel like what it really reveals is how much Elena critiques herself. And she projects her worst fears about herself as coming from others. So from Leela mm-hmm. or her mother or her mother-in-law, even her daughters. She's like, at many points, she's like, I assume my daughter, like, my daughters hate me because of these things. And it's like, or do you hate yourself because you do those things? And in some cases, these people have verbalized these critiques. Again, we're getting it through Elena's point of view. So we think they said it. That's what she wrote that they said. But Elena clings to these comments and often lives by them. Which, while frustrating to read, is also like something I can sympathize with. You know, like someone Mm. says uh, a harsh comment and that's like all you remember for the rest of the day. Even though, you know, seven other people said nice things about you and you just, you know, forget those and cling on to the hurtful comments. I mean, there's things that my brain keeps around for years. Like, hey, don't do that, remember? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I can understand that. She definitely does that with Nino, I think, in a different way. I feel like part of why she's so delusional about Nino is because, as we saw in that section that I read, she uses him to reflect the best parts, her aspirational parts of herself, back on herself and sort of create good things about herself. Because remember our discussion in book two where we were like, Does she like Nino or does she want to be Nino? Mm -hmm. And we had this whole thing about that, right? And to the to the end, I don't think she ever liked him. I think she just wanted to be him. Or she wanted she wanted his access, his social climbing, his power. And um and she finally gets it. And finally the facade finally drops and she realizes that it was a fantasy that she'd constructed of him that she was living for that was not matching up with the real person. Everyone else could see the real person, how shitty he was. And it took her so long to see it because he was a useful tool for her brain to sort of project herself back onto herself. Yeah, so in that sense, you know, he was very useful, I suppose. It's the best thing I can say about him. <laughs> okay, well, let's talk about a character we did like. Okay, yes. Alfonso. Very fascinating character. There's this really awkward scene, which we can even read as awkward seeing it through Elena's eyes. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, like, that's how awkward it was. Where Elena tries to kind of insert herself as, like, an ally to Michele and Alfonso at Lila's office. Like, Elena and Alfonso have talked, but this is, like, a very hush-hush secret in the closet relationship. I don't think Michele knows Elena knows. And Elena just inserts herself very self-focused on like Mm -hmm. i know queer people i also write interesting things that help people expand their minds and it's like no girl yeah no like she's really (laughs) lacking some self-awareness in this and perhaps the reason it raises awkward is perhaps from from her later age that she's writing this she sees her her misstep a little bit more it's not quite explicit but yeah I think there's a couple of things. I think I think it's partly just reading it now True. <laughs> as us that we see this woman with a lot of power trying to 
force herself into a conversation to prove how woke she is rather than to like help the closeted queer people she's talking to. Ooh, are we acting like her daughters right now? <laughs> we were like, mom. Oh my gosh, cringe. <laughs> like, oh my God, mom, so cringe. So there is that element, I think partly. I think also Leela critiques her afterwards and is like, you probably shouldn't have done that. And so because the person who's writing it has heard Leela tell her you probably shouldn't have done that, she probably has that reading on it now. And then also we get the dis- we get McKelly's physical discomfort that's described. So Alfonso seems like chill because he knows that Elena knows he's fine. <laughs> but McKelly's like really uncomfortable. Seems awkward to be talking to her in the first place. Awkward to be in Leela's office. Like it's just the whole thing is weird. And so I think the way that he reacts to things that she does tell us how uncomfortable she's making him. But she thinks in the moment that she's going to make him more comfortable inexplicably by acknowledging the elephant in the room. The way that Elena writes about Alfonso and Michele's relationship is like that Alfonso is becoming Leela and that Leela is then using him, dressing him like her, making him into her shadow and using him to control Michele. But it's sort of vague and metaphorical, but that's sort of what Elena interprets from the situation. And so I was trying to figure out, I was wrestling with this unreliable narrator of like, is that true? Is that really what's happening? Is like, does Michele really think that this is Leela and he's obsessed with her? And I'm like, is there that much mindfuckery going on in this situation? Or is he just like, a deeply closeted individual with a lot of self-hatred that he exerts upon other people. Because I just was, like, so baffled by the way that Elena writes about it yeah. and interprets it. Yeah, I think that, you know, in so many ways, Elena's always trying to put a story on things. And she's yeah. she actively telling us that she's writing this to find Leela. And so perhaps she's finding Leela maybe more involved in things than Leela actually was. And again, we're we're also getting Elena's interpretation of motive, which is never explicit in this particular instance. So my theory is that she's making a little bit more of it than it was. I think Michele was very repressed and hated himself. I don't think it's too far of a stretch that he hated Alfonso for his attraction to Alfonso. And I think that mm-hmm. complicates their relationship. I think Leela is a good friend to Alfonso and is willing to help him live as he wants as a genderqueer person. And I mean, Leela was kind of the symbol of beauty in their like generation of the neighborhood. And so in many ways, Alfonso's like, oh, he's not attracted to Leela. He wants to be Leela. Like, I feel like that's kind of his, his story arc in the earlier novels is we're like, oh, we think he's really into Leela. Oh no. Like he sees something in her that he wants for himself. And I think Leela just, like, helps him in that way. And there is some weirdness with, like, you know, Leela kind of putting Alfonso in her clothes. But is that a friend helping a friend out? Because he can't really go shopping as easily. Is it, oh, this clothes, these clothes look good on me and we look kind of similar, so it'll probably look good on you. Is there a bit of that manipulation because she wants to have some leverage over the Solaris? Probably also that. You know, like she has 
Mm. She has this intel on Michele that if Michele gets on her bad side, like, she could do something with. But at the same time, I think her care for Alfonso would keep her from doing anything that would, like, really harm them. So that's my read. Yeah. I really liked that point that you made where, like, and in this way, it felt a little messed up and a little, like, icky from the part of Elena as a writer is that she's constantly trying to make things mean something. You know, it has to have a bigger meaning. It has to have a bigger story. And it's a story that, you know, she's telling herself about her life and her neighborhood. And it's like, like she's applying queer theory to her friend, you know, in, (laughs) in a weird way. Because that's like all she knows about it is through like, an academic lens and she's like yeah I've written a book about it I know all about it kind of thing and so it's like it 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 doesn't have a bigger meaning yeah okay you were saying earlier how Leela calls out Elena for talking like a book does and I think this is an example that we might actually get of her doing that where Mm. she is writing Alfonso Michele and Leela's interactions with each other as a book and not as real people living their lives that may have nothing to do with Elena and she needs to be okay with that mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and maybe less to do with Leela than she thinks it does I would say for Alfonso and Michele it's probably about Alfonso and Michele <laughs> yeah I mean you do get this sort of long speech from Alfonso in his own words and he sounds really happy and so that feels good and that feels like a good place to kind of leave it for the moment where because Leela is such a supportive friend and ally he's sort of able to use her to learn she like kind of teaches him how to be genderqueer and doesn't you know is supportive of that like journey for him and yeah so he sounds happy for a while and then we have his terrible sad ending yeah where he's beat up and murdered which I think you pointed out would be a kind of frustrating eye roll moment if not for everyone else in the book also dying. Yes. There's this, like, unfortunate trend in, like, a lot of books that have queer characters where they're the sad story. You know, the friend who dies from AIDS, the friend who is murdered, um, who lives a sad life, um, and not as... There's been a push in especially queer literature and queer representation in like film and, and media to celebrate the positive stories as well. And so I think, you know, there could be a, a place where you're like, oh, gosh, of course, the queer person gets murdered. It's always, you know, the outsider, the person who's different. But this book, this book series is full of people getting murdered, um, yeah. sometimes for reasons known, sometimes for reasons unknown, um, sometimes directly by another character in the book or just... That person happened to die because this is reflective of real life where people die and it it doesn't all mean something all the time. It just happens. Speaking of which. The disappearance of Tina. Da-da-da. Does it mean something? I think Elena's whole point in writing this series is trying to figure out what does this mean? What actually happened? For so many readers, myself included, it was so frustrating to not have an answer. Yeah. What do you think happened? (laughs) <laughs> oh, it's it's tricky because I feel like I would have kind of different readings whether 
Elena Ferrante, the author, knows what happened or not in this fictional world, right? Like, does she have an idea and an agenda that she's putting into the story to lead us a certain direction? Or does she genuinely not know and that's the point? Because I feel like part of the point of the book, it's her trying to make sense of these sort of inevitabilities and these sort of random acts of violence and this sort of chaos of her life. And like, I feel like what would be more in line with her story is Tina, you know, running away and getting lost and then getting picked up by some person who doesn't know her or getting into some accident. But like, it would happen with someone who doesn't know any of our main characters. Whatever happened to her was just kind of purely coincidental. But I don't know. Like, in terms of the themes of the book, I feel like that would fit better. I don't know. What about you? Yeah, I'm... Because so much of the book, even though there are these very literary elements and ideas and, and, you know, foreshadowing and things happening, I still think what happens here is probably as random as so much of the other violence. You know, like, it's connected to some root causes with, like, you know, people who are murdered in this book are usually murdered for their ideas. I don't think she was kidnapped by anyone who was trying to get anything from Leela or Elena because then they would have tried to get something from them. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I think, like, a a kidnapper who knew her, I don't think that's part of it. I don't think the Solaris did it, though. If it was going to be anyone that we knew in the book, maybe a Solara connection thought they were going to do something to tear down Leela. Yeah, my my biggest theory is that she ran away or followed something or someone that she thought she knew and then was like accidentally drowned and washed out to sea or there was an accident and someone was terrified for their own reasons, you know, for getting mm -hmm. caught up in a accidental killing and so they tried to cover up and they hid the body. Like, I think if we were supposed to figure it out, quote unquote, Ferrante would have left way more clues. Yes. She's an incredibly talented writer who knows exactly what she's doing with, like, every sentence is, like, my feel from how she writes these books. And I think she probably worked very hard to make sure we did not know what happened. In the same way, she works very hard for us to not know who she is. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and then I feel like the the if we're talking about Elena as an unreliable narrator, the final question that we're left with as... Leela disappears, these dolls appear on Elena's front porch. I feel like my final question is like, and, and the main character's final question is like, did Elena ever truly see Leela for who she was? Did we ever get the, the real picture of her? Or did she just sort of create her into what she needed her to be in her mind? And, and recreated in this story? Or is it a mixture of both? I think it's a mixture of both. I think we get enough like conversation between the two of them. They are connected enough in their lifetime that I feel like Elena has to know something about Leela, you know, and I feel like they were close enough that Leela would share some things about her life. But I think this book is a perfect, a very great example of how we are these stories that we continue to tell ourselves, you know, and so mm -hmm. she is telling herself a story about Leela that is informed by real interactions 
But Elena sees herself as so intimately connected with Lila that I think the the parts of herself that she is concerned is is, you know, influenced too much by Lila, like her writing. I think the same can be said the other way around, where I think there's elements of Lila's character, like perhaps some of her harshness and her critique, some of her like really intelligent, like mastermind shit, I think is also Elena influencing how we perceive Lila. That makes mm, sense. Yeah. They just both bleed into each other enough, and we're only getting Le- Elena's perspective. If we got the same four books from Leela's perspective, we could probably start to parse out like where one ends and where one begins. I do find it interesting because um, at the in the very end, Elena's like crying. She's holding these dolls, and she feels used by what does she call it? It's like Leela's redemption story or something. Leela was often. Or Elena often perceived that Leela was using Elena as her sort of escape by proxy from the neighborhood. It was like, well, if Elena succeeds, then I succeed, right? So there's this sort of projection of of Leela onto Elena and back. And then Elena does the same thing with the book that she writes at the end. Um, Not the book we're reading. But the book that she writes that really about Tina going missing that pisses off Leela, where she spends all these years imagining, she's terrified that Leela's going to write this book. And in the process of imagining the book that Leela's supposedly writing, she writes a book. And she's like, oh, I guess I've written it in my mind, and now I'm just going to type it out. And I feel like that's a really great example of how Perhaps we can end with they sort of mutually create each other Mm. um, and they create themselves out of their ideas of each other in a way. But there was this one last quote that I loved. Elena says, I loved Leela. I wanted her to last, but I wanted it to be I who made her last. I thought it was my task. I was convinced that she herself as a girl had assigned it to me. So we're sort of, again, another cycle moment where we're coming back to Elena sort of lived her life feeling like she needs to immortalize Leela's story and needs to create Leela. She wants to be the one who makes her. So, yeah, I don't know. I feel like we can never be sure. Mm-hmm. So my thoughts as we wrap up on the series as a whole, I think this open-endedness and the unreliability of Elena's point of view, um, the mysteries that are left unsolved. I think that's really what gives it its, like, zing. I don't know a better word. <laughs> like, the part mm. that, like, grabs me in. And it's actually a quote from the, this fourth book that really stuck out to me. Unlike stories, real life, when it has passed, inclines toward obscurity, not clarity. Even as she's writing a story, it, it's very meta. Even though it's within a novel... Um, I think what she's capturing is this sense of real life, this realness, that even as life passes, we're not really getting clarity in a lot of ways. Yeah, and I think this idea of like capturing real life in many ways keeps me really invested. And and as much as we can critique Elena and complain about how she doesn't see the world as it is, like we're all our own unreliable narrators. Like that's why we need each other to like talk and like did did I hear that right? Like this is what I got. Mm-hmm. And your friend would be like, no, girl, you're like completely wrong. Or like, well, I mean, like maybe, but did you have you eaten anything lately? Because you might just be misinterpreting <laughs> this. 
but we make meaning of our lives. Like we are meaning making machines. Like that's what we're trying to do and, and understand the world around us by telling and shaping and retelling the stories of ourselves. And so whether we like Elena or not like Elena, I think, I don't think it takes away from the fact that, she, that she's just trying to make meaning of her life. As frust- I get so frustrated with her with throughout these books. But they're so compelling and so, like, human, I guess, for all the reasons you said. And I am on record as complaining about her extensively. I know. <laughs> I know. I, <laughs> I will own up to it. But I... And even Elena's character and her struggle. Like, I still wanted her to succeed. I was still rooting for her, even though she drove me crazy. I felt like Leela in certain ways in that respect, where I was just like, oh, you were just making all the wrong choices for this, but I support you, and I hope it works out, and I want you to do well, and I was excited for things for her, you know? It was like this sort of fond exasperation, I think, that is really compelling and relatable. So, all around, an incredible piece of writing. One of my favorite segments on a podcast I listen to, The Dave Chang Show, is they do overrated, underrated. They just, like, throw mm-hmm. out a topic, you know, like, houseplants, overrated, underrated, whatever. I would say El- Elena Ferrante is, like, probably, like, regular rated. Like, I feel like the hype is worth it. Like, she's she's definitely highly reviewed and regarded, so I can't say she's underrated. Um, but I don't think the hype is beyond... I think it's I think it's deserved. That's like um intending to hate about you. She's like, I know you can be overwhelmed and I know you can be underwhelmed, but can you ever just be whelmed? And her friend says, I think you can in Europe. <laughs> I am whelmed. <laughs> <laughs> I am in Europe, I am whelmed <laughs> with this book. This book is rated. <laughs> All right, so our closing out with our recommendations. Uh, anything that you think people should read if they enjoyed this series? I would recommend Slouching Toward Bethlehem by Joan Didion, or honestly, anything by Joan Didion. I feel like they are—they feel like contemporaries to me in terms of the topics that they cover and certain life experiences and they're both just incredible female authors that you need to read in some at some point in your life especially to learn about the 60s and 70s and yeah i would recommend marilyn robinson's books gilead is the one that always stands out my mind i really enjoyed that one but housekeeping i know is more uh female protagonist led that may be a little more similar to the experience reading elena ferrante marilyn robinson is so quiet in comparison, but equally profound, mm-hmm. I would say. Yes. Very Midwestern. So there's a lot less like screaming. Yes. And murder and things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And lastly, things that we are currently obsessed with, everything, some of the things that are bringing us joy. Boa's new mini album called Forgive Me. Girl never misses. She is, I would argue, the queen of K pop. I don't know if anyone else. Some people would agree with me. And then The Illusionist podcast, spelled with an A, The Allusionist. It's all about words. It's extremely British. (laughs) It's extremely British. But she has a similar perspective about grammar to us that I appreciate, where it should be descriptive, not prescriptive. So anyone like that is a win in my book. 
I recently went to a similar concert. They were performing mm. here in Chicago at Sleeping Village. It was phenomenal. I, I've been listening to some of the music nonstop, and I got a beanie at that concert, which I have also been wearing nonstop, though not today, because it is slightly warmer, and I did not feel the need for a hat. But your, your mention of the illusionist reminded me, when I was there, I ran into a friend um, who said they hadn't been to Sleeping Village before, except once they came for a pod- a live podcast. It was The Illusionist. They recorded an episode on tour here in Chicago at Sleeping Village, which is also like a very short walk from where you and I used to live. Yeah. If only we'd gotten into that podcast pre-pandemic, we might have been able to see an episode live. Ah, such a shame. I'm also obsessed with the podcast Should I Quit? Um, It's by one of the hosts who hosted The Real Question. I don't even know how I started following them. Like, I don't remember when I said follow to this podcast, but when they rebranded us Should I Quit and kind of changed the format of the show, I started listening. And it's great. It's like people calling in with, like, topics, everything from, like, should I quit my relationship with my father? Uh, And it's really heavy stuff to, like, should I quit watching YouTube, which was going to be a lighthearted conversation. And then it, it took a real deep turn. And I... it resonated with my soul like oh are you watching youtube as a symptom of other things in your life and i'm like am i reading Mm. this like ridiculous fiction series that i really don't care about as a symptom for over exhaustion in my life and then yeah Mm. some good introspection but i really enjoy the host and her approach towards these very candid conversations well we're heading into thanksgiving for us this week so i probably should wish people a merry christmas if anything Happy holidays, whichever holiday is nearest you by the time you listen to this episode. (laughs) My friend asked me, like, what do you guys celebrate? Like, what are you celebrating on Thanksgiving? And I was like, great question. Um, (laughs) So technically, it's a holiday that was invented during the Civil War to like, based on this myth that like colonizers and indigenous people were friends back in the day to like convince the North and the South to like be friends. And we like pardon a Turkey. <laughs> <laughs> I love that description. It's, it's all accurate. And that's such a great way to summarize it. Thank you for listening to book club with Julia and Victoria. We would love to hear your thoughts on this book or the topic we discussed. So you can share your review and recommendations with us on Instagram at book club with JB on our website, bookclubwithjb.com, or by leaving a review on Apple podcasts. You can also visit our website for show notes with links to all of the recommendations and the things bringing you joy. If you don't already go ahead and follow us on whichever podcast platform you are listening on so that you can be notified when our next episode is released. This episode was co-hosted and produced by myself, Victoria Brewer, along with Julia Clausen. Rebecca Gasney provides us with project management support. Our music is composed by Greg Brewer, and our logo was designed by Gabby Fabland. Until next time, happy reading.